And it's great to be back. Um, I'm sure many of you know, um, we, uh, Rachel and I uh, took August off to try and um, recover a little bit. So hopefully I'm looking a little more healthy. Thank you to all those um, lovely, honest, loving people who told me how tired and exhausted I looked um, towards the end of July. Um, I, generally, I genuinely do appreciate your honesty, um, but hopefully I'm looking a little bit better this morning than I was a month or a month and a half ago. So um, isn't it great to listen um, to those stories um, of all those young people who have, who have dreams that they're pursuing, who have this desire to go and change the world, who, have, um, who are stepping out into new areas, whether that be medicine or international relief or whether that be military or whether that, whatever that might be. Um, it's just so beautiful, isn't it, to see that passion and that excitement and that enthusiasm to go and change the world, to go and um, step out and discover more of who they are. Um, but I'm struck this morning by um, a quote that has been um, popping up all over the place for me over the last three or four weeks. And it's from a lady called Margaret Mead. And it says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And I want to talk this morning a little bit about um, how we might change the world. Um, I, um, I probably want to start with a, I probably want to start by talking a little bit about gratitude. In Philippians, um, Paul starts his letter to the Philippians this way. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And we skip three verses and it says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Over the next few weeks next couple of months, um, we're going to be looking at unity and community. Um, I believe that um, there, is, there is something that God is calling church. Um, but the good thing is, um, I think it's something that we are um, perfectly positioned to do. Um, I, I remember when I, years ago, actually when I came to, it was, I'd come to take on the youth and then um, a little while after that I was stepping into leading the leadership team and I had this sense, I felt like God was saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm calling you to do this, I'm calling you to be here, I'm calling you to lead this and, and it's going to change 
the nation. It's going to change the world. It's going to change the nation. I was just like, I remember sitting at my desk and just thinking, I mean, that's quite a big, bold claim, God. Like, it's hard to think of a movement that has changed the nation. Um, you know, any move of the church, you kind of go, is, that, is there anything that's really fundamentally changed us as a nation or fundamentally changed the world? And, and what I realized is that I was, um, and what I maybe more recently I've realized is that, you know, I was falling into a familiar trap. I was falling into a familiar trap because I was thinking about um, the big, the grand, the very obvious, the very significant. And I was kind of thinking, well, maybe Alpha. I guess maybe Alpha. Is that, that's something I, I guess you might be able to say Alpha. But and it's not in the consciousness of everybody. It's not. Um, but I'd fallen in this trap of thinking something had to have real significance. Something had to be very big and bold and dramatic. And I think very often we fall into the trap of looking for the dramatic, the very significant. But actually maybe what God calls us to is to find the, the significance in the insignificant. Actually, I think what God calls us to is something much more profound. I mean, many of you will know that I'm a big sports fan, particularly a big football fan, big Manchester United fan, which meant that Liverpool's 30-year quest to win the league again, being them succeeding in that was a, was a painful moment. Um, for all those Manchester United fans. But congratulations to Liverpool fans, and I know quite a number. Um, congratulations to you. But one of the things I noticed was, quite soon after they won the league, this um, hashtag started trending. And it was like, oh, Liverpool won the league. Hashtag, this means more. And you kind of like, oh, it doesn't actually mean more, does it? And they go, no, this means more because 30 years and because of who we are, it's the story, it's the, it's the whole thing. This is really significant. This is bigger than any other league win or this is bigger than any other thing. This means more. But what's interesting was I, I recognized, we didn't have hashtags back in the 90s when I was in a similar position, but as a Manchester United fan, I grew up my whole life with Manchester United not winning the league. We went 26 years without Manchester United winning the league. And then, and then it was our season. And as, as a story about, you know, I had spent my life going to pretty much every game, traveling away to see them, traveling internationally to see them, going, going to Old Trafford pretty much every home game, hoping for this victory. And then... It arrived. We'd won the league and we were supposed to be playing Blackburn. And, and this was it. We were going to get the trophy and this was going to be the greatest thing because this means more. This is the culmination of everything, right? And um, now, and I was also, you know, in a relationship with Rachel. We weren't that far into our relationship, you know, for a second year. And she was having some celebration and she was at Not university down in Nottingham. And, and she was like, oh, I've booked us all on this whitewater rafting trip we're going on a white water rafting event and uh, we can do that I was going well I mean okay Rachie but you know United have won the league and that's uh we're playing that night and she said no 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 it's fine we'll be finished we'll be finished by three maybe even two then you can get back the game's not till 7 45 it'll be fine no problem Adam you go I'm like yeah no, okay fine I can do that it's only two hours it's only two hours from Nottingham to Manchester it'll be fine 
So we go. I love whitewater rafting, and we're having a great time. And but we, it's all running a bit late, and someone's late, and the group before us aren't finished. And then so we're running a little bit late, but it's fine. It's fine because I had loads of spare time. It's fine. So we so it's okay. So now it's now it's three o'clock. We're only whitewater rafting um, for an hour or so. So it'll be all right. It's not a problem. I'll be finished by maybe half three, four o'clock, and then I can get up, and it'll be all right. I can be there six o'clock. It's fine. Doesn't kick off till quarter to eight. No problem. So we go whitewater rafting. And we have an amazing time. And then finally we finish. And, uh, and we're carrying the boat back. I say, wow, that was amazing. It felt like more than an hour. She went, oh, yeah, no, no. Because we messed you around so much at the beginning, I gave you an extra hour. It's fine. I went, oh, what do you mean it's fine? What, what time is it? She went, it's half five. I'm going, half five? I'm in Nottingham. And you're not going to go and get the trophy in two hours in Manchester. That's not fine. I mean, thank you for the extra hour, but that's not fine. I was very calm about the whole thing, as you can imagine. But I got, I got changed very quickly, jumped in my car, and drove. I might even have tipped over the speed limit. Only once or twice, but I didn't have many opportunities to because it was obviously rush hour. Now, on the, all the way out of Nottingham, all the way up the M1, past Sheffield, up to Leeds, across the M62, rush hour, rush hour, all the way, cars everywhere. But it's very calm, it's not a problem. So eventually, and I drive up, and I get, I get to Old Trafford, and then I park, and I get in my car, and I can hear the roar of the crowd because... It's five past eight now. And they've been playing for 20 minutes and it's already 1-1 and Giggs has already scored a wonder goal, which I've missed. And I walk into that stadium, but it's all right. It's only, you know, I've only missed the first 20 minutes. I walk into that stadium and I shuffle along to my seat next to my brother who gives me a look that I will never forget. And he just looks at his watch and he looks at me and he goes, where were you? What did you do? And I'm like, no, no, it's all right, I'm here now. We had never been late for a game in my entire life. We're always there an hour before. And I'm like, now I'm 20 minutes late for the game that mattered because this means more. And this was the moment. And anyway, I saw them lift the trophy. And it was dramatic, and it was exciting, and it was the thing of, it was the stuff of dreams. It's why they call it the theatre of dreams. It's the stuff of dreams. And you think that this is it. I can also tell you that about six weeks later, when the new season started, it didn't feel like that was it anymore. Because suddenly the pressure was there. Now, now we've got to go and do it again. Now we've got to go and win again. You know, I thought that was going to be it. I thought that moment was going to be the culmination of my 21 years of life. I thought that moment was going to be the, the pinnacle of everything. And you know what? Maybe for a day or two, maybe even for a week, it was. And then actually you have this dawning realization. Maybe it doesn't actually mean that much more. Maybe it's just a sports game and they won. Maybe we just got a trophy. I hope Rachel's not watching this. Uh, I, maybe we just won a trophy. And now we're going to go and do it again. But you see, we, we put all this expectation of fulfillment 
of significance, of purpose, of meaning on big events, winning the trophy or winning the treble or winning whatever it might be or achieving something or getting that job or whatever it might be. And we kind of, oh, when I can just, when that happens, that's going to be the greatest day. That's going to be the most amazing thing. And we look for these things that are going to change the world. The world will be different then. Then you realize the world isn't actually very much different at all. I saw a quote um, recently, or I was reading in a book, and, and it kind of raised this question. And it said, you know, we talk in the church about all these life-changing moments that we might have had. Those great, these great moves of God or whatever. But if we're still praying for them, maybe they weren't the great life-changing moment moves of God that we thought they were. If we're still kind of go, oh, do it again. Come on, come and do that again. Come and do that again. I want to recreate that moment. I want to recreate that worship experience. I want to recreate that feeling. And maybe it wasn't the most life-changing thing that we ever thought it was. Maybe the significance is in the insignificant. When I was on my sabbatical a few years ago, about five, four, five years ago now, I was um, working through a lot of questions. Like, what is this for? What are we trying to do here? What is the purpose of church? What is the significance of what we're doing? What is it that God wants to do through us? What, what does it mean for us to be an inclusive church? What does it mean for us to be an expansive church? What does it, what does it mean? And, and I had some amazing internationally renowned mentors and um, people I was relating with and working this stuff through with and talking to and really incredibly smart people, incredibly effective leaders. I remember as I was getting to the end of my sabbatical, kind of coming to this idea of, well, actually, as a church, I think inclusivity looks like, I think the kingdom looks like extending the tent in both directions, not just moving one way down, you know, just trading in this sort of, these boundaries for these boundaries, but what does it look like for us to be so inclusive that we create this space where everybody could find their space, but nobody gets to stand still. We are all transformed. We're all moving towards Jesus. And we can have people with different ideas and different understandings of how they read scripture and different contexts and different, all sorts of differences, political differences and theological differences and social differences and this beautiful chaos, dynamism, beautiful way of existing as a church with this broad inclusivity in a world that is polarized. It seemed to me that this was something profound. And I remember one of my mentors who'd been on this journey with me talking to me um, about this and saying, well, Adam, I mean, it's a very ambitious vision. But um, I, don't think, you know, I don't think you'll pull it off. I've never seen a church do that, in that to that extent. And my response was, Well, if there's a church that can do it, it's YCC. And I believe that. 
I don't believe that God called us all here necessarily to do something that's huge and dramatic and lots of fame and lots of significance and in everyone's consciousness. But I do believe that God called us here to do something that would change the world. Something that would change our nation. Something that would change our community. Something that would change us. I do believe that God called us here to do that. And I do believe that this church, this community that we are part of is exceptional. You see, Jesus talks about a community that will be known by the way that it loves one another. He says, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another, by the love you have for one another. He talks about this command of loving God and loving others. And I think there is this, there is this call around love and community and relationship, which is right at the center of the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. And it's something that I think we are working out here. And the reason why I have confidence, I had confidence then, I have more confidence now. Because look around you. Even in lockdown, this church, this community is inspiring. And yes, it's inspiring in the way that we engage with our community, whether that's the family stuff or the homeless stuff or the coordinating the volunteer response across Yeovil or the food bank that happens from this building or um, all the different things and all that community engagement is inspiring and absolutely and just it's been such a joy to see all that stuff carrying on whilst Rachel and I have been off for a month and, um, and not even a blip, not a bump, just people serving and carrying on and absolutely inspiring and beautiful. But that's not actually what I'm talking about. That is inspiring. That is beautiful. But what's even more inspiring, what's even more beautiful is the small, is the insignificant. It's the way that this community has loved each other. It's not about the people on stage or the people in the leadership team, although... We do have a phenomenal leadership team and we, we are in a moment of transition. We have seen people who have served faithfully, faith-filled people. Jan, Malcolm, Sarah, Alan, all taking those steps of obedience and saying, now is the time for me to step away. And you know, for us, this might seem normal. Well, of course, but let me tell you that it does not happen so much in churches and in a lot of our, not just churches, in institutions, leadership is the pinnacle, that's the end, that's the end game. And if you're a leader, then you stay there until whatever. And what we have seen modeled again and again and again is people who serve faithfully and selflessly, long term, obediently, but never about ambition. And when God says, it's time to step away, yeah, it's painful. 
Yes, it's emotional. But we're only here. We're only wherever we are because it's where God calls us to be. And so we've seen people saying, now is the time. And, we, and we're in this moment of transition as a leadership team. And it's a beautiful thing to see. We see a little bit of the same. Again, with our trustees, Nigel Reese has served so faithfully for so long. But again, comes to a point where he's saying, now I've been praying about it. And said, God says, now is the time to put this down for someone else to pick this up and to move on. And you just hear this resounding, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because it's the end, because Nigel is stepping, he's a busy man. He's stepping into all sorts of things. But it's the end of this part of the journey, the trustees part of the journey. And I just, you know, it's really important that we honor those people. But it's not even that that I'm talking about. Just, I'm talking about the myriad of stories of people who are there for people, even in lockdown, who will sit on the garden wall if someone needs someone to visit and they can't go in, who will, who will be there, who are on the end of a phone when life is hard and difficult, who are praying for people, the people who have prayed faithfully for the church, for the leaders, for the community, for each other, the small group leaders. My goodness, the small groups are so important to who we are and how we adapt to this new. And they have served so faithfully and obediently and generously and sacrificially. And it's a beautiful thing. The people who have gone that extra mile, the people who have loved, the people who have been there for people, but also the people who have been showing up to the prayer meetings or um, people who have been in their homes and praying and praying for the neighbours and loving their neighbours and loving their community. Another extraordinary thing is we didn't do a big push or a big profile or a big, this is really important or you need to do this, but Almost as soon as the lockdown hit, giving went up. And again, it might seem really normal to us, but it's extraordinary. When I chat to other church leaders, that is not the experience of virtually every other church leader that I, or most other church leaders that I speak to. And yes, income went down because we can't rent the building out and coffee shop and all that sort of stuff. But actually giving went up faithfulness community that is committed to each other it's a beautiful thing people volunteering how can i help what can i do the food bank has been an incredible experience just to see the people in and serving and and helping we have we model something here that is profound and it might feel insignificant it might feel like you're not really doing anything. You might feel like, well, you're just doing what anyone would do. But as a community, we are encouraged to find the significance in the insignificant. To do the small. We have talked before about the kingdom of God being brought in one act of love at a time. Not through big grand programs, not through big shows of whatever. One 
act of love at a time. We are a community. We are a community that is called to love one another, to be together and to navigate this world together. And I return to that quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. See, we are called to model something in our community, in our individualized, individualism-obsessed world. We are called to model community. Will Willimon, theologian, American theologian, says, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated Sunday gathering on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, there can be no explanation other than something decisive happened in history. Something happened when Jesus rose from the dead because look how these people are living today. This is what we're called to. Karl Barth said, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. We are called to live differently, to model something that leaves the world around us scratching its head, but deeply attracted to. Jesus says... The world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another, by the love that you have for one another. Our dimensions say the way of Jesus cannot be lived in isolation. We cannot do this on our own. But when we love together, we change the world. We change the world. I want to end with... Just reading a passage from Ephesians. So whilst our musicians come up, in Ephesians 4 it says this. In light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences, quick at mending fences. You are all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who rules over all, works through all and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. But that doesn't mean you should all look and speak and act the same. Out of the generosity of Christ, each of us is given his own gift. Over this next few weeks, 
this next term, we're going to be looking at unity and community. We're going to be looking at how to be united. What is this inclusive, Jesus-centered model look like? What does it look like for us to live in community? What does it look like for us to be covenanted to one another and to God? How do we live this out? It's a series that I'm really excited about. A series that I think is really important for us. But I say again, if as a church you can do this, it's YCC. I love this church. And we are so blessed by this church, by your encouragement, by your positive attitude, by your openness to change and to challenge and to new ideas and to whatever it might be, the way we love one another, the way we love God together, the way we reveal God to each other and to our community. I believe God is calling us to change the world. I believe that this means more. Thank you.